let's wrap up then. Okay, point number three. Here's what it is. Your actions are either building blocks or stumbling blocks for future generations. Your actions are either building blocks or stumbling blocks for future generations. So as we go into this final chapter of Nehemiah, there's 13 chapters in Nehemiah. And we've, we've kind of been hitting highlights along the way. And you might be thinking, okay, surely at this point they have seen God was faithful to his promise that he told the prophet Isaiah that they're going to spend 70 years in captivity unless they repent. And lo and behold, what happens? Babylonian captivity comes, and how long are they there? 70 years. Jeremiah encouraged them, said, listen, I I want you to make it through this, but prophet Isaiah said it's going to be 70 years. Isaiah even told us the name of the king that's going to allow them to go back. I mean, it's that precise. God was faithful with all of that. But here's what, here's what we noticed. You would think at this point, they're going, okay, let's get, and some of them did. Ezra got it. Nehemiah got it. We got to go back. We got to rededicate ourselves to the Lord and remain faithful to him. He's been faithful to us. Let's be faithful to him. And you think as you're moving into the 13th chapter, that they have now recommitted themselves to the covenant in chapter 10. They have confessed their sin. They have repented. They're going, okay, God, we're going to get this right this time. We're going to break this cycle. But as we get to the end of of chapter 13, we see that the stage has actually been set for something else. So let's review quickly. What were those three commitments that they made to the covenant? They're found in Nehemiah chapter 10. Here's what they are real quick. Number one, God said, I don't want you to marry anyone from one of those other nations that's around you because those are pagan nations and they're going to draw you away from me. That's all it was. It was, hey, do not marry an unbeliever, someone. I don't want you to to be yoked with someone else who does not worship the one true living God because the moment that you start marrying someone else that doesn't worship me, you're going to end up worshiping their false gods. So don't, don't, don't marry people who are Ammonites, Moabites. Why? Because those people will, will draw you away from worshiping the one true living God. Second part of the commitment, God said, I, don't know, I not only don't want you to marry them, I do not want you to buy or sell or do any type of trade on the Sabbath with those pagan nations. He's not saying that you couldn't do trade with them other days of the week, but he's like, on the Sabbath, you know, I don't want you to, I don't want you to do that. And then number three, they promise to provide workers. In other words, the Levites, those who take care of the temple, that they would provide and take care of them, as well as the upkeep of the temple, and maintain the worship of the one true living God. Those were the three commitments. Don't marry the pagan daughters. Don't don't buy and sell trade on the Sabbath. And then third, make sure that you keep the temple things going. So let's pick up Nehemiah 13, verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God. 
because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against, against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. And so it was when they had heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. Here's what, when I read that, here's what came to mind. Have you ever been in a situation where you've listened to a sermon, you were listening to a preacher like me, someone like me, maybe me, and you thought, the preacher must have been told what was going on in my life because the personal application of what he was preaching about was so specific and so relevant to what was going on in my life, to what was taking place in my life, that it was so strong that we couldn't just dismiss it as merely coincidence. Have you ever heard a, heard a sermon like that, that you're going, oh my goodness, he, he must have been a fly on the wall in my home this week. You ever had that experience? You ever had that moment where you're, this is describing exactly what's going on. I think that's where, where the, the Israelites were at. They, they open up God's word. They're reading from the, the books of Moses. And lo and behold, they're reading about not giving over their sons and daughters to the Ammonites and the Moabites, who coincidentally or incidentally live right next to them still. These are the same people that they're encountering. So that's what's happening. You know, that's what's happening in their lives. They're going, oh my goodness, this is, this is us. So the Ammonites and the Moabites are going to be the descendants, just to refresh your memory, they're going to be the descendants of Ammon and Moab, who are the incestuous descendants of Lot and his two daughters. Listen, here's what the Ammonites and the Moabites are always after. They want the blessing of the Lord without the commitment to the Lord. They want the benefits of being under the Lord's blessing, but they want no commitment to him. These descendants have always caused trouble for God's people. I mean, he even saw mentioned here Balaam. Balaam was that, that uh, pagan prophet from what's modern-day Iraq, and he was the one that, that came and, and he was hired by uh, Balak to come and curse. And every time he tried to curse them, he was like, look, you know, Balak, I, I can't do anything that God won't let me do. But here's the thing. Every single time we, you know, we're reading through this passage, every single time the, the, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, they got into this cycle and they broke the covenants. They were disobedient. And here they are again. They broke the covenant. They were already giving themselves, their sons and daughters over in marriage. But surely... Surely they just broke one of the three, right? I mean, I mean, they just recommitted themselves. So maybe, maybe just one of the three. Pick up at verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, the high priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. Now, that should just cause you to pause right there when you read the name Tobiah. And you should be going, wait a second, where did I hear that name before? Tob Tobiah? 
is this the same guy? When we got back, the same guy who was making fun of us? Is this the, is this the Ammonite? The one who was telling us that if we rebuilt this wall, ha-ha, even a fox comes along and walks on it, would knock it over? Is this the guy that was mocking us? And now our high priest has allied with him? That's exactly the Tobiah that this is. And listen to what they did for Tobiah. The chief priest had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings and the frankincense and the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the offerings for the priest. But during all of this, <laughs> I love this, Nehemiah is like, look, during all this, I wasn't even in Jerusalem. He wants to make this known, like, like all this junk was going on, but I just want you to know I was not even in Jerusalem. It was the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, king of Babylon. I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king. And I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil, the Eliashib, the high priest, had done for Tobiah, the Ammonite, that mocked them in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. Yeah, sure, Tobiah, come on. I'm sure we can find a room for you somewhere in the temple, right here in the courts. Bring your stuff. We don't need all this grain. We don't need all this stuff. I know we're supposed to give it to the Levites, but, you know, why don't you just move in? Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Oh, are you kidding me? Listen, Eliashib seems to have an issue. Look down at verse 28. And one of the sons of Joyada the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I drove him from me. Two people were mentioned, if you remember back in chapters 2 and chapters 4, that were the biggest mockers. I mean, they were the ones that were making fun of them. One was Sanballat. The other was Tobiah. And what do we see? Their descendants had married their relatives. They moved Tobiah into the temple as a resident for some reason, got rid of all the things that we're supposed to be doing. Do you hear how crazy this is? Listen, I pastored a church. Um, I won't mention uh, the name of the church to save them embarrassment, but this church had a massive baptistry suite. I mean, it was impressive. Um, and in this baptistry suite, they had several changing rooms for, for baptisms. And I thought, man, this is incredible. When I, when I started there as a pastor, I went up and I was looking at the baptistry suite. And I was going, man, this is, this is absolutely amazing. And I opened up the baptistry suite, the one, of the, one of the changing rooms. I opened it up. It was storage. I was like, What? They just put a bunch of boxes and other things in there, and I closed it. I went to the next one, opened it up. Storage. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. 
And I went, I went to someone else, and I was like, hey, um, <laughs> the baptistry suite up there, all those rooms up there, all the changing rooms, have, they, they just have a bunch of storage, a bunch of junk in it. Yeah, we, don't, we never use those. We only need like one or two, one for the pastor and then one for whoever's getting baptized. I said, what if you have more than one person being baptized? I mean, you've got all these rooms. What do you do? Oh, well, just, we just have one. Guess what we did? <laughs> we cleaned out the baptistry changing rooms. Cleaned them out. So find someplace else for the storage. Why? These rooms were, were designed for a purpose. And when we just put storage in there, here's what we were communicating. We're not anticipating God doing anything spectacular. We're not expecting any baptisms. Therefore, we're not going to plan for them. In fact, these rooms are, consider this, these rooms that were once dedicated for the purpose of baptism are better off served as nothing more than closets for storage. No, 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 no. Not, not while I was there as pastor. We cleaned them out and we started using them. At one point, we filled up every single changing room and then we started having to send people to other changing rooms uh, on other floors just because we, we ran out of rooms to use. Not only are there sometimes do we need to get rid of the stuff and bring back in the things that God wants, there are, there are times within a church that there, we might find Eliashibs as well. And the truth is that if you've got junk stored in a closet and you're not expecting God to do baptisms, chances are it was probably somebody like an Eliashib that put it in there. What I mean by that is there are people who want the blessing of the Lord. They want to hold the positions in the church, but without any commitment to walk with the Lord. So sometimes you've got to remove those people. Sometimes you've got to remove the junk. And then the Lord will continue his work. So, okay, two of the three. Surely they did the third one right. Look at verse 15 through 22. In those days I saw people in Judah tread, treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you have done by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same thing? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I, this is Nehemiah, commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened until after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that burdens would not be brought in on the Sabbath. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. 
Then I warned them, and I said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Now, I don't think he's talking about laying hands on and praying for them. I'm going to lay hands on you. This is going to get physical. And from that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. So here's the point as we wrap up all all of uh, Nehemiah. The remnant that had returned back to Israel, they're having the exact same problems that their ancestors had. They would follow the Lord for a season, but their hearts were prone to wander. And while we had hoped maybe that by the end of the book of Nehemiah, that the remnant would have learned their lesson and walked in obedience, that's not what happens. I mean, you, 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 you get caught up in it, right? You're reading and you're, you hear Ezra and his passion. You see the leadership of Nehemiah and his, his zeal for the Lord. And you're thinking, okay, there's hope. This is, they're going to they're gonna see to it. All these things are going are gonna to turn around. And they're going to walk in obedience now. But here, here's what we're left with at the end of Nehemiah. The people of God are still struggling in their disobedience to the Lord. And they are still, as ever before, in need of a Messiah to come and to redeem them from sin. We also see that God remained faithful throughout the entire time to every single promise that he made. So the stage has been set. Our minds are going, wait a second, Eliashib, the high priest? Even the high priest? Yeah. The stage has been set for a group of religious, legalistic leaders to emerge. Ones that we haven't heard from before in the Old Testament. But when the New Testament begins, they're already well established. Ezra was the beginning of one of those groups that became known as the scribes. Ezra started this group called the scribes. They were concerned with the Word of God. But there's going to be another group after Ezra and Nehemiah, after those books are finished, there's going to be another group that's going to emerge. Never mentioned in the Old Testament, the full operation in the New Testament are going to be the Pharisees. Legalistic, high priest, but corrupt. But corrupt. So with the willingness of Eliashib, the high priest, to abandon the covenant promises, it really shouldn't surprise us that we see the emergence of the Pharisees. And in case you're wondering, let's let's consider what Jesus said to these groups. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, 
but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And then Nehemiah closes the book with a prayer. Remember me, O God. Remember me, O my God, for good. Nehemiah's conscience was clear. He had done everything that God had called him to do. And he surrendered it to the Lord. One last thought, and then we're going to pray together. May all who come behind us find us faithful.